You guys ready? Ready or not, here we come. Okay, 1 Timothy chapter 5. This is what Paul does when in, in all of his epistles. He has a doctrinal part of the, of the epistle, a, a part in which he's focused on doctrine, teaching, how things are supposed to go. And then he switches to, now what are you supposed to do about it? How does that work out in the practical? We move from, from doctrine to practice. And so as we, as we take a look at what Scripture lays out for us today, in practice, the Word of God would call us that there are times where we are to rebuke one another. But it's interesting, one of the fun things about Bible study is you discover little nuggets. For example, this word for rebuke here is only used in the Bible here. This word for rebuke is a word that is a very harsh um, verbal attack. I guess that's a good way to, of putting it. Having a harsh verbal attack against somebody who may need correction, may need admonition, may need to be warned by what Scripture gives. So the first thing he says is don't do that. Don't do that. You remember back in chapter 3 when we were talking about the practical requirements for an elder, for a deacon, what are they supposed to look like, not being quarrelsome people, not being hot-tempered, you know, being... Uh, 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 having the ability to, to walk in self-control, right? Which is a fruit of the Spirit. And as we look at these ideals, <clears throat> in the practical sense, Paul begins here in chapter 5 by saying, don't rebuke. Now that line carries over for every other description that follows. For example, don't rebuke an older man. Don't rebuke younger men. Don't rebuke older women. Don't rebuke younger women. That follows in the Greek for every descriptive term afterwards. So he says, do not rebuke, don't be abusive verbally. That does not mean that we don't correct, right? Everybody with me? But you don't get to do it abusively. You don't get to take uh, advantage of your authority or your position or, or wherever you might be. You're not to rebuke anyone in that way. But he tells us then, next, what we are to do. Encourage. Encourage older men. Encourage younger men. Encourage older women. Encourage younger women. They all need encouragement. Exhortation. The New King James will talk about. Uh, some of the other translations out there will lay out that. The idea that we're building up. So whenever, how do we deal with one another? How are we supposed to exist with one another? How should we function together as a body of Christ? We should encourage one another. We should build one another up. Now there's some really practical ways that, that we can learn to do this. Now, I, uh, for 13 years, I started my, my, I started ministry as a football coach. Like 23 years ago. I coached for 13 years, did youth group and a lot of other things, but primarily my job was to figure out how to, to lead that school to a state championship, and we were the Buffalo Bills. You guys know what that means? That means we went to the championship over and over and over and over and over for 13 years and lost. Second place. My favorite thing to say was second place is first loser. We finally in 2000, I want to say 2008, I think it was 2008, the year before we came here, finally won the state championship in an incredible game of snow and sleet and, and fog. Yeah, it was crazy. It was an epic game. Epic game, yeah. Hallelujah, right? All of that did not earn me one crown in heaven, by the way. But what I discovered during those 13 years of, of doing that and, and the variety of other ministries that God gave me the opportunity to be a part of, I have a tendency to focus on negative. So it's easy to, it's, that's not hard, right, to focus on the negative and and But God gave me, in his infinite wisdom, God gave me 22 years ago uh, a son who was born with autism. And my youngest son, his name's Joe, he's 22, I think. Kathy's not here to correct me, so we'll just all go with 22, okay? 
um, he could tell you if he was here, but, but if he, he, one of the things that I learned about Joe is I can't dwell on the negative. One of the, one of the ways where my son's autism gets too big is he starts to focus on the negative and then that causes him to begin to cycle through, uh, a lot of really negative emotions and everything goes south when that happens. Now I can come in when that's going on and Joe's focused on all the negative and he's kind of tumbling through this uh, attitude of I'm, I'm dumb or I'm stupid or I can't figure it out and I'm mad at the world and it's everybody's fault. And when he's going through that, if I come in and I say, and I focus on all the things he's not doing right, then all I do is speed up the tumble. Do you understand? And then the tumble gets faster. And nobody wants to be there for that. And then pretty soon, what, what Joe used to call it, Joe used to call it monster. So monster was when autism got too big, he couldn't deal with it, and so he just explodes. And whoever's around gets all the stuff on him. Whatever the explosion is, whatever, whatever verbal abuse comes out, whatever things are floating around in his head that he needs to get out, he just gets it out. And so when, when, one of the things I learned through the process of understanding how to help my son is that it doesn't do me any good to focus on a negative. It helps when I focus on the behavior I want. It helps when I exhort him or encourage him. Oh, Joe, it's okay. We used to say when we see the spitting start happening, we tell him, spit out the monster. So he'd walk over to the trash can, spit in the trash can. Now, there was really no monster coming out, but for him... He was thinking, okay, I'm, I'm, getting, I'm, I'm getting the steam off. I'm letting these things out. And then I could just begin to share with him. Usually, I've shared with you guys before. Usually, I, still today, yesterday we were on our way to McDonald's, and, and I'm, I'm bad. I like to tease him. And sometimes I tease him just a little bit too far. So he'll holler, you know, because he always gets the same thing at McDonald's. Plain double cheeseburger. Now it's up to two large fries, because one large fry is just not enough. And uh, it used to be a Sprite with no ice, but now it's a vanilla shake. So, so he does change. So, but I've never got his order wrong in my life, because it literally never, nothing ever happens. When it changes, it's so shocking that you, you would never forget it. So, but my fun game to do on the way to McDonald's is to say, so you want a Big Mac? And he'd go, no, dad, I don't want a Big Mac. I want a plain double cheeseburger, two large fries. You know what I mean. And then uh, I should just stop. <clears throat> but usually I say one more time, did you say a Big Mac? This is our little game we play every single time we go to McDonald's. So then he starts yelling, no, I want a, you know, very clear, telling me what the order is. And then I get the opportunity that I've been looking for, I guess. I say, Joe. Soft answer? And then he goes, he says it real soft. Just like that, he remembers the scripture from Proverbs, right? Soft answer, turns away wrath. And, and so all those positive exhortations have found a place where I can, in, in one small phrase, develop more than all the frustration of trying to figure out how to parent him when he was little that, that we went through. And the thing that I learned is... Having harsh words for somebody to correct them is not helpful. It doesn't work. So Paul says, practically, here's how you want to deal with things. He says, with older men, encourage them like a father. Encourage them like you would a father. I'm sorry if you didn't have a good father, but encourage them like you would if you did. Be respectful. Be encouraging. If you didn't have a good father, maybe you didn't have that role model to look to, or maybe you did. But use that as an opportunity when you encourage an older man. Timothy was young, right? Timothy, when you encourage an older man, encourage him like you would a father. Patience, respect, but encourage him. Encourage younger men like a brother. Like an equal, like somebody you can stand shoulder to shoulder with. He says, encourage older women, 
like a mother. That's the same way as you would an older man. The way you would encourage your mother. You use respectful words, soft tones. You, you bring encouragement or exhortation from a place of caring and love. And then he says, and younger women like sisters. Encourage them like sisters. And then he has to add a caveat. Because he's talking to a man. So he says, with all purity. Timothy, clean out your head. If your head ain't straight, don't encourage a younger woman. Now, we all know that people fall all the time. There's only three ways that people fall. They always fall one of these three ways. The devil has three plays. It's the only one to use. Money, sex, power. So he's saying, look, Timothy, when you're encouraging a young woman, make sure your head's straight with all purity, like your sister. Because Paul understands the things that can go on inside of a man's head. So he's saying, look, this is how we're supposed to relate to each other. Not with harsh words, encouraging words. Build each other up. Be careful not to tear one another down. Remember, Ephesians chapter 4 says that let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. How many corrupt words is that? So I love rules that are easy to follow, right? No corrupt word, only such that will build up, encourage, that gives grace to the hearer. So it doesn't say don't deal with the issue, but he says when you do, no corrupt words. And trust me, you know what corrupt words are. You know them when you've uttered them. And it's not just talking about cursing. It's just talking about corrupt words. Where you, where you from the abundance of your heart, your mouth speaks and the vile, the vitriol comes out. The anger, the hatred, the frustration. That's corrupt. So if I can't just have a normal conversation, if I can't just talk and I can't check my emotions, then it's not time yet. Do you understand? So sometimes you're not able to do it. Okay, then the, here's the test. Don't do it. When you can do it according to the power of the Holy Spirit, do it. One of the, one of the things that we know, the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, Right? So when your words sound like love, joy, peace, long-suffering, self-control, when we see those things, evidence, now we're ready to have a conversation about maybe something that's, that's a little more emotional for us. This is the practical. This is how we're supposed to be to each other. A long time ago, somebody told me, God give us two ears and one mouth so we would listen twice as much as we talk. A lot of the time we ought to just be quiet for a moment and listen. But when we speak to one another, let us speak to one another in encouraging tones. In verse 3 he says, honor widows who are truly widows. Now isn't that a little weird? Does everybody know what a widow is? So what is the difference between a real widow and a false widow? That seems odd, no? So when we come to interpreting scripture, one of the important things for us to do is to kind of get our minds into the culture. What, what did they mean when they talked about widow? What was that term? And how could that, how could the way they saw widows be different than us? Our, our, we just have strict definition, right? Uh, a husband and wife, when the husband dies, the wife is a widow. So I don't know how you have a, not a real widow. Unless her husband's not really dead. But in their day, the widow was the most destitute person in the entire town. Because she had nobody. When they got married, a woman would come into a marriage with a dowry. You guys heard of those before? Yeah, my wife did not come with one of those. <laughs> I don't know, we were too young, if we'd have been older, she might have come with debt, which is the opposite of dowry. However, 
the dowry was something that would be set aside so that the purpose, the only purpose of it was so that if her husband died, there was a way, a means for her and her children to survive. Because if she had nobody, then there's nobody to take care of her. That helps us to understand what Paul means when he's talking about widows because he's talking about the destitute. He says, look, when you're helping someone who's destitute, make sure they're really destitute. Does that make sense now? Yeah, that, that makes it, that helps us understand a little bit more of, of what he's talking about, what he's getting at. And he says to honor them. No, the, there's always this attitude within the, within the church and really within the world that the church ought to be benevolent. Kind to strangers, willing to help, willing to help in whatever ways are necessary. And we read in Acts chapter 6, remember, when we find the establishment of the deacons, we read about a similar problem that they had in the first church in Jerusalem. It says in Acts 6 verse 1, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. So the Hellenists are the Greek-speaking Jews, and the Hebrews are the Hebrew-speaking Jews. You with me? Two groups of Jewish people who are having a hard time getting along. Uh, uh, a, a, A complaint arose against the Hebrews because of their widows. They were being neglected in the daily distribution. So there was a sense in which the church was helping the destitute. And in this case, in the church in Jerusalem, there was a complaint. The Greek-speaking Jews said, hey, how come you're not helping the destitute that speak Greek? Seems like only the ones speaking Hebrew are getting helped. Are you tracking with me? (laughs) So, here's what they say. It says, uh, so they gathered the twelve, and the twelve summoned the full number of disciples. So now, they bring the whole church together. The twelve are the disciples, right? The, the disciples of Christ, the, now the apostles. It says the twelve summoned the full number, the whole number of the church comes together. And says, it is not right that we would give up <coughs> preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore... Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, and we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, so they they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, and they these they set before the apostles, they prayed and laid their hands upon them. Now, one of the things you may not realize is those men that they chose all have Greek names. So they chose the people who had the complaint from among them. They chose six men who were able to be sensitive to the issue, to, to help the poor, to make sure that they received their daily. Distribution. A widow who had no husband and no property, had no money, had no way to care for her kids. She had nothing. Now there are other widows who had the things that they needed. They're not destitute. But there are some who are. You remember there was a particular widow that was coming to the temple to give. You remember the story? Jesus said he was watching how the people gave. You remember? And the widow dropped in. Yeah, she dropped in the widow's mites. You go to Jerusalem now, and on every corner, someone will sell you widow's mites. No, am I lying? They're all over the place. They have widow's mites by the bucket full. Nobody really knows if any of those are real. If they're real to you, it's good enough, right? Passing out widow's mites like crazy. Well, she she gave, and Jesus said, see, this woman gave more than all. Why? Because she gave out of her need not out of her excess she gave what she had which was not very much it says in james 127 religion that is pure and undefiled before god the father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction Now again, culturally, when we talk about widows and orphans, we're not just talking about widows and orphans. Who were the poorest people of their time? Widows 
and orphans. The poor, the ones who had no, no man, no, no person watching out for them, providing for them. What well, doesn't mean that women weren't capable of doing it. Certainly they were. But sometimes bad things happen and you find yourself living in a place in a way you didn't think you were going to, right? So the idea is that there would be a willingness within the church to honor the widows who are truly, truly widows. But it begins next in verse 4, first talking about the responsibility of family. But if a widow has children or grandchildren... Let them first learn how to show godliness to their own household and make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. That means if you have kids, if, the, if a woman is destitute, the widow is destitute, but she has children who are old enough to work, go to work. Help the family. Because once upon a time, they all were working for you. To provide for you. And sometimes, somewhere down the line, our parents are no longer able to do that, right? And it says, listen to what it says. It's it's important that we understand three things. Three things he talks about here. He says, this is a sign of godliness. When children will help their parents. It's a sign of godliness to care for our parents. Secondly... It is a way in which we repay the kindness and love that they gave to us when we were younger. It's a way that we repay. When they have need, then we're to be there apart. The third thing is it pleases God. One of the things that Jesus said to the Pharisees, he said, you know, the Bible says to honor your father and mother. Is there an end date to that? It just says honor your father and mother, period. But Jesus said to the Pharisees, he said, but you guys, you take what you would have given to help your parents and you say, I can't help you no more because I've given your, what I had to help you out to God. So I can't help you no more. You have declared it Corbin, a gift to God. And Jesus said, us, that's not okay. It's not okay to do that. Remember, we're talking about the practical. What do we do with the <clears throat> doctrine that we understand and what it is to follow the Lord and be an example and try to live up to the standard that Jesus Christ has laid out for us? The, the point of the standard is not to say, well, I failed so I should quit. No, the point of the standard is to say, repent, confess where we fall short, and then what? Get up and figure it out. So the first thing he lays out, now when we talk about honoring the poor among us, when we talk about honoring the destitute, symbolized by widows and orphans, I'm not trying to distinguish and say we shouldn't do anything for widows and orphans, that's that's who the group is about. But as we look at it, if they have family, family should come alongside. If they... Don't understand why they should in a moment. I think they will. But the the idea is we want to show piety and godliness. And we want to have an attitude that pleases God. So we help the people we can help. Especially our family. Then in verse 5 he says, She who is truly a widow left all alone. Now he's defining that. What is truly a widow? What was the next line? Left all alone. She doesn't have anybody. Are you guys with me? She doesn't have anybody. Then he gives qualifications for the ones to whom we are to give help. She is left alone, has set her hope on God, and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. Left all alone means she doesn't have any family who can support her. She has no hope or help for income or support. Secondly, her hope is in God. She has a relationship with the Lord, right? So she's looking to God as her hope, as her deliverer. And finally, she is devoted to prayer. She is devoted to prayer night and day. It's a way of saying continuously going before the Lord in prayer. This is a true widow. These are the people that Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says we're supposed to help. 
These are the ones. We've we got to find a way, right? Next, he goes on to say, but in strong contrast, that's, a, that's what that word but means. In strong contrast, she who is self-indulgent is dead while she yet lives. A person, a woman who may find herself destitute and who may find herself without any family, but she lives her life in self-indulgence. Paul says she's dead already. She's dead already. She's not, she's living, but she's not living a life that's going to bring forth fruit. So the idea is that's not the person you need to help financially. There's a different kind of help she needs. Are you tracking? Because just because it says don't help her financially doesn't mean don't help her, does it? What are you supposed to do with someone who's lost? What do you do with someone who's dead in their trespasses and sin? How is it that we who were dead in our trespasses and sins are made alive? We're made alive through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, right? When we come to know him, <clears throat> there's a book. We as a, a board of elders all got together and we read this book. The book is called uh, Help, Help Without Hurting, I think, something like that. Pretty close. If you put that, if you search for it, you'll find it. But the idea was money is not always the help somebody needs. But there, it doesn't absolve the responsibility of the church to do what she can to help her people. But that's not, if you notice, that's not the same thing as everybody out in the street who needs help. Because the people out in the street, there's no end to folks who come to, to say hi to me. We have a great reputation at Calvary Chapel Buell, just so you know. If people go to South uh, Central Community Action and need help, and South Central Community Action uh, is out of money, you know who they say to call? Calvary Chapel Buell. That no, not nobody else. They say call Calvary Chapel Buell. I've got calls from Mountain Home, people in Mountain Home that that uh, don't have any any are in need, and they say we heard we heard you people help. We got calls from all over the place. But listen, when the Word of God says the only ones that you're required to help are the ones in the body who are apart, who have their hope in God, right? Who have put their hope in God and who are in prayer and are seeking the direction from the Lord. And, and that's the ones we want to help, right? They, are, they rise to the top of the list. But that doesn't mean nobody else gets help. But everybody else needs Jesus. I had a lot of guys walk through that just need another fix. I got a lot of guys show up that just need some way to get some more dope. Or just a little bit of money so they can get some more drink. Or just a little bit of money so they can free something else so that they can have those two things. And those guys need two. But the best way for me to help them is to give them Jesus. Because it's not always helpful to fill a man's pockets. Now, a man comes to me and says, I haven't eaten. Will you fill my belly? I have never one time turned anybody away. Not one time. I have never said, be warmed and filled. Without handing them a sandwich to help them be filled. You get what I'm saying? But what he's laying out for us here, this idea of helping widows who are truly widows, he's talking about helping those within the body of Christ. Now in their days, <coughs> there was no welfare. There was no system. You didn't, you didn't go somewhere and somebody gave you something so that you could buy food. There was no such thing. If you had nothing, you had nothing. And nothing was going to change. And so he says the church, this is a church's role. This is a church's job to help one another. But those who are self-indulgent, those who don't know the Lord, those who don't have a relationship with him, they need a different kind of help. But they still need help. They still need compassion. They still need encouragement. So he says in verse 7, command these things as well. So that they may be without reproach. This is how he's calling the church. This is what he's calling the church to. Now he goes on in verse 8. Now in strong contrast to what we've talked about. There's that word but again. In strong contrast he says. 
If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially the members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's pretty harsh language, no? I want you to think with me to Jesus on the cross. You remember? Jesus looks down at John and he says to John, while he's dying on the cross, John, behold your mother. And he says to Mary, Mary, behold your son. And the scripture says, from that day, John took Mary into his household, and she died in his care. Till the day she died, she was with him. That's the example that Jesus gave us from the cross for his own mother. So when it says, someone who won't care for the members of their own household, they are worse than an unbeliever. You know what that means? That means even an unbeliever would do better than that. Even someone who doesn't know God loves his mom. Or ought to. Loves the members of his family. Or ought to. So when he says it's worse than an unbeliever, it's like, man, even, even unbelievers do that. That's what Paul's saying. But then he has denied the faith. Who is it that we're following? Our neighbor? Is he the goal? What, the guy across the street? What about our brother or our sister? What if you have brothers and sisters and they won't help you with mom? <clears throat> Are they the goal and you've done enough and you should be able to just say that's it? It's good enough? Who's the example that we follow? The example we follow is Jesus. Who's the example we follow in terms of piety? How, how we ought to live a righteous life? Uh, who's the example? Is it, is it our neighbor? The guy sits next to us in church? Is it uh, my brother or sister? Who is the example by which we ought to live a righteous life? It's not the people around me. Who is it? It's Jesus, right? I put my eyes on Jesus and I say, that's the goal. I can always find somebody who's a bad example and then justify what I do. Right? <laughs> I've been doing it for 55 years. It's, that's not the trick. The trick is to say, I'm not going to do that. I want to put my eyes on Christ and I want to follow that example. Now, what about in taking care of our family? We have a, I've experienced this in my own family. If you, for those of you who know my testimony, my, my dad was a preacher. He divorced my mom and uh, married his secretary. And so I went through a long, probably 13 years of hating God for, I don't know, just I have, You have to have somebody to blame, I guess, and that's what I did. Which led my own life to a series of complications. I didn't really want to talk about those things. But anyways, I, did, I, I was a wretch, 13 years. Then God got a hold of my life. Things got straight. My mom, from the time she was in her 30s, she was picking up a ream of paper you know those little things of paper like whatever there's 500 sheets or whatever and somehow when she did that she hurt uh her disc a disc in her back <clears throat> so they went in and said well you need to do surgery now surgery back then was a little different than surgery now so they say well we need to do surgery on your back and the doctor who did surgery on her back was a hack and he got in and he messed her up and so she has been 100% disabled from the time she was 30 or mid 30s somewhere in the 30s when you're a little kid you know so we've been taking care of mom for whole life ever since so part of the reason why I struggled so hard with my dad is because when he left he didn't have to take care of mom no more he's just gone now, mom's care passes down to sons. There's three of us, me and two brothers. And over the next, all the way till today, my brothers, me and my two brothers have 
cared for my mom. Now, either mom lived in the town where me and Kathy were and we watched over, or she lived in the area where my brother Jim and Veronica, his wife, lived, or he lived with uh, Jerry, my youngest brother, and his wife Elena. So somewhere she was in those circles, so we could watch out for her, because she had a lot of struggles, a lot of issues. She was in chronic pain all the time. She took pain pills like they were candy. And because her husband had left her, she had a lot of emotional pain. So my mom could take more pills than you, you can't even imagine. She had, she had three different doctors, textbook case, three different doctors all giving her three prescriptions at the same time. And she could be out of pills in a week. She's throwing them down. And so we all took turns. Then mom got Alzheimer's. Now the blessing of Alzheimer's was all her pain went away. All of it. You know, I, I used to, it was hard to look at mom and hear mom talk about stories about dad and how things were, should have went. And mom was sad her whole life till she got Alzheimer's. When she got Alzheimer's, mom started to laugh. And my brothers were all stressed out. Oh, she got Alzheimer's. And I'm like, man, just let her have a little bit of happiness. It's okay. She laughed like crazy. I'd call her up just to hear the crazy stories. Mom, tell me she's working for the CIA or the FBI or whatever thing was going on with mom. And we just would, I just listen. You know, I'm, I'm just here to listen. And uh, so that was a blessing. She didn't have to take any pain pills. <clears throat> but the Alzheimer's care was getting, was getting tough because they don't stay there. They keep deteriorating. So my younger brother, he's, we, me and all of the sons got together. And we said, what are we going to do about mom? Got to figure something out. So my youngest brother said she'll come to Arizona. Arizona has a great program for people who have residency in Arizona. They help with their aftercare if they have to go into a home, which we knew eventually mom was going to have to do. So she lived with my brother the last three years. January, she went into full-time care. She can't talk. She can't get out of bed. She, she can do nothing. Just part of the progression of Alzheimer's until one day I'll get a phone call. So, but we have, as siblings, figured it out. Never one time in all that, did we ever think about calling a church to help us figure out what to do with mom? Because mom's my mom. And that's my responsibility. And that's what the Bible's saying. If you have family, that, that's your resp- I'm sorry, life is hard. Hey, I'm the first one that will agree with you. Yep, it's hard. <clears throat> Why did it have to be this way? I don't know. I, I spent a long time being mad about it. I just got tired of being mad about it and just said, you know what, God, I'm okay. I trust you. I don't know the whys. I don't know why things had to happen the way they had to happen, but I know that it pleases you. That part I can understand, right? It pleases you if I help take care of my mom. However that, whatever that looks like. However we figure that out. So we, we, you know, I, I called, I talked to my brother just the other day. I just called him to tell him thanks. Because the last three years been him. Not, I didn't have to deal with diapers. I didn't have to deal with mom sneaking out and nobody knowing where she's at, right? You know, they, you have to lock down the house. Otherwise, they're, they're just confused. They're not trying to make life hard, right? So I called my brother and I just said, you know what? I just want you to know I'm so thankful for you for being there for mom and for, you know, I can't even imagine how hard this, these last couple of years were for you. You know, my time with mom, she wasn't like that. So the times that she stayed with us was much easier. Just encouraging one another. Cause that's what real life looks like. There's the Hollywood sells you some kind of story, you know, that ain't real. Real life don't look like that. Real life is a mess. And we just get down in the mud with one another and we figure it out because we're family. So first family, your blood family. Second family, your church. If blood family won't stand, you tell us. We'll help each other. 
We, we're, not, we're not here to let anybody be hungry. I don't know if I, how much we can solve your problem, whatever the issue is. But we're here to be a family together. If you don't have nobody else, you have us. That's the way it's supposed to work, right? Isn't that what the scripture is laying out for us? 1 Timothy 5.9 says, So let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age. Now that's weird too, isn't it? What? Enrolled in what? Well, there was a program within the church. The church took care of the widows. And certain widows got enrolled in the program. The daily distribution of stuff that was necessary for the day. How did they get enrolled? They were older than 60. You see the requirements. It was not just everybody, right? Let me, let me ask you this. Do you know the one thing that Jesus said about the poor that resounds in my mind? When a woman came to him and broke an alabaster flask and anointed him with costly oil and worshipped him extravagantly, and the disciples, Judas, said, this is a waste of money that should have been sold and given to the poor. You remember? Do you remember what Jesus said? The poor you will always have. That means there's no cure for poverty. You can't cure it. We got a lot of politics working on all the ways we can cure poverty. But Jesus said about poverty, you're not going to cure it. The poor you will always have. The heart of God is to see a heart of compassion in his people. That care about the poor. Right? Ezekiel talked about it. Jeremiah talked about it. The Old Testament prophets. When they brought judgment. Against the children of Israel. You know what the judgment was about? Usually one of the first things. You don't care about the poor. You don't care about the poor. Now that's not just the government. Of the nation. When the prophets are talking to the nation. About God's judgment is coming. Because you don't care about the poor. Who's he talking to? Is he just talking to the king? Is he just talking to Congress? Well, he's talking to all of us, right? The people. Having a heart that cares about the poor. The church, he says, enroll them. They're above 60 years old. They believe in the sanctity of marriage, right? That was the idea of a one uh, woman man or a one man woman. Somebody who's been faithful, faithful to marriage, understands The value of marriage sees that the value of marriage is something to be striven for, not excused. Sometimes we live that way, right? But who's the example? Remember? Who's the example? What's the Bible tell us? How should we then live? Okay, if we fail, what do we do? Quit? No. Right? We repent, confess, and we move on. Yes? But what we don't do is say, well, that's no longer the thing. God's not really into this marriage deal. Yeah, actually, he's into it quite a bit, right? So I don't care if you're on marriage one or marriage 10. This marriage that you're in right now matters. God says, keep your promise. So if it didn't work out before, I'm sorry. If you were hated because it didn't work out before, I'm sorry. But God's requirement, God's design, you stand with the woman or man you are with. And you figure it out. It's easy to quit. Anybody can do that. Do you have to go to special school to figure out how to quit? Is there a special lesson somewhere? I go online and I can. I need to watch a YouTube video on this is how you quit. No, it's not required at all. Quitting is easy. Anybody can do it. Figuring it out. That's what we do. That's when we make our covenant. The whole point behind a marriage ceremony and we stand up front is that we stand before God and we say, God, I promise it's me and her till the wheels fall off. That's it. Till death do us part, right? So he's saying, do you want somebody, you want to help somebody? Make sure they understand the sanctity of marriage. If she is brought up 
children? Has she had a family? Has she been productive? Has she shown hospitality? Is this person someone who is kind to others? Has she washed the feet of the saints? Is she willing to serve other people? Is she in the body serving? These are the requirements Paul says when, he, when you're looking to help somebody. Are they a part? Are they, are they a part of serving? Have they cared for the afflicted? When, the, when they're sick, are they the ones who are willing to go and bring hot soup? Like Mark shared with us this morning, you know, he's, he's been going through it. He lost 50 pounds in three weeks. And he's got another surgery to go. And I don't know how many surgeries he's had, umpteen. And he's got further to go. And he's got a wife and little kids at home. So when the call goes out over the prayer chain, hey, we need somebody who's willing to help with some meals for a family. He says, he's saying here, when you put a woman in the enroll, where you're saying we're going to take care of her and we're going to help her. Is she one that's answering the call? Who says, yeah, I can make soup. I'm going to make dinner anyway. I'll just make it bigger, right? Are they willing to care for the afflicted? Or have they devoted themselves <coughs> to every good work? These are the people within the family of God that, that he is saying, these are the ones who should be enrolled in the program, enrolled in the program who helps. But in verse 11 he says, but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry. He's saying, look, if someone's younger than that, they're probably going to get remarried. Don't, there was a program within the church. These people just plugged in, became a part of the church staff. And started doing the things around the church. And they were the ones who caught me. said the younger, the younger women, they're going to get married. Let them get married. Don't, don't put them in. This was Paul's concept. So, and so incur condemnation for abandoning their first faith. Of saying, well, well, I'll come into the church and just serve God. And then a handsome fellow walks by and they go, hey, I'm out of here. See ya. Peace. Save them from that asshole. If they're younger, he says, don't, don't enroll them in that. Let them stay uh, where they're at. Besides that, we don't want people who are idlers going from house to house. Uh, not only idlers, but gossips, busybodies, saying the things they ought not. So Paul says, I would say to younger widows, marry, bear children, manage households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed. So it's a lot of things that will pull us away from following Jesus. We don't want these things to be that which does it. Verse 16, he says, If any <laughs> believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them, that the church be not burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. You get the idea? The word's not saying don't help people. It just says don't help people with other people who are able to help. Help the ones who really need it. Does that make sense? So our goal is to try to figure out who that is. That's how we practically do the work of the ministry to understand the things that Paul's calling us to to see people in need and not say just be warmed and filled but figure out how to help in a way that doesn't hurt amen why don't you stand with me let's pray father god we thank you for this time and we can come and study the practical things in your word and how your word calls us to be obedient, God, to the things that you lay out for us. I pray, Lord, that we, as the body of Christ here at Calvary Chapel Buell, would just practically say, look, here's what God's Word says. We're, we're going to try to accomplish that. We're going to try to help one another. When somebody's sick or in a hospital. Or somebody's struggling with cancer. Several members within the body right now who are doing that. And when the call comes... To say, man, we could use some help, some relief. And I pray we as a church would stand up and say, yeah, I'm, I'm here for you. Just like we would for our own family. To be willing to help the destitute within the body of Christ. To be willing to share the love of Christ with those outside of the family of Christ. To see, to look, to be a part of the solution. But this is how we're supposed to live. This is what it's supposed to look like. Maybe we lost track. Maybe we got all caught up in some kind of a American dream, religious experience. But this is the practical. 
Here's what God says, man. He lays out for us. I looked down at my mother from the cross and I made sure she was cared for. Now you go and do likewise. Look down from your cross, your life, your busy, and look for the people who are in need within our family here. And say we can be part of a solution. That we encourage one another as fathers, brothers, mothers, and sisters to try to keep walking the walk. Because the the psalmist told us, he said, you're going to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But you don't have to be afraid because you're not alone. The Lord says, I am with you. And you have family bigger than the one that you were born into. So may we stand with one another, encourage one another, help one another, and bring glory and honor to the name of Jesus Christ. And we will give you, Lord, all the praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, if you have need for prayer, there'll be prayer counselors up front. Happy to pray with you. If you're sick, need anointed with oil, they'll be up here for that as well. God bless you guys, and go in peace. In my heart and my soul, would I give you control? Come to me from the inside out, Lord. Let justice and praise become my embrace to love you from the inside out. Everlasting, your light will shine when all else fades. Never ending, your glory goes beyond all fame in the cry of to bring you praise from the inside.